0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. We know there are many places to get answers to basic questions about the COVID-19 virus, how it's spread, and how to protect yourself and others. But the news and recommendations are constantly changing, so we won't pass up an opportunity to connect you with really amazing doctors and researchers. On the line with us now to answer your questions about COVID-19 is Dr. Mia Terramina. She's an infectious disease specialist with DuPage Medical Group. Dr. Taramina, welcome back to the program.
1: Thanks for having me back, Jen.
0: So let's just, again, start with basics. Remind us what coronaviruses are and what makes COVID-19 a novel coronavirus.
1: So coronaviruses are very common viruses. There's at least six or seven different strains, four of which are very common, uh, causes of the common cold. And we know that these viruses spread readily from human to human. And most of us have probably had a coronavirus at some point in our lives, uh, as it does, again, cause the runny nose, the cough, the common cold presentation occasionally there are strains of coronaviruses that make the leap from a different animal model to humans. And those ones are more of the novel strains, meaning that something has changed in the structure of the virus to make it jump from one species to the next. Those tend to cause more significant issues in humans because of the fact that our human bodies have not typically seen or been exposed to them before. We know that this happened with SARS, MERS, and now COVID-19 being a novel virus, one that has a little bit of a different uh, shape to it and a little bit of a different ability to infect our cells.
0: Now, you mentioned SARS and MERS. How does COVID-19 compare with those other viral respiratory illnesses? It's certainly
1: similar. There is uh, some reports that the comparison between SARS and uh, COVID, which is a SARS virus, there's about a 70% overlap in, in the genetics of those two viruses, so they are quite similar. MERS was perhaps a little more pathogenic. Uh, It did cause a higher percentage of mortality in those that it did infect. Uh, But all three of the viruses do cause the more severe respiratory issues leading to respiratory failure and death.
0: So we know that scientists have been learning about COVID-19 as this pandemic continues to evolve. What's the latest on what we know about how the virus spreads?
1: We're continuing to learn more each day. Um, Every virus has the ability to um, be recorded uh, as infecting a certain number of people. So for each individual that has the virus and is showing symptoms, there is a probability for how many people that individual is likely to infect. And we originally thought that number was around two or three. Every person with COVID is likely to infect two or three other people. We are seeing that that number is probably higher, closer to five, maybe even a little higher than that. So each individual with COVID is likely to infect uh, approximately five more people. And the other thing that we are really sort of dealing with on a day-to-day basis in all of our colleges and all of our practices is trying to stay on top of what might help to treat these patients in addition to supportive care. And there are numerous trials going on currently that allow us to um, try certain medications and also try certain protocols to do the best we can to keep these patients well and to do the best we can to keep our hospitalized patients uh, stable.
0: It's part of the challenge around treatment is is the fact that the virus presents so differently uh, in, in, in different people we hear such a range of symptoms
1: there certainly is. For the vast majority of patients, the virus is mild. And at this point, I've I've personally spoken to um, well in excess of 100 COVID patients as we do call and talk to each of them personally if they're tested on the outpatient side. And on the inpatient side, I, I get to see these patients on a regular basis too. Um, we see patients that have nothing uh, but very mild symptoms all the way up to patients that are severely ill. And there are a number of factors that come into play, but it's not absolutely any particular factor. We know that patients with certain comorbidities, diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease may have a more severe presentation, but we also know that some people with no comorbidities at all may have a very severe presentation. So we are now using a lot more our laboratory findings, and our imaging studies to help guide and predict who may have a more severe presentation of this illness. There are certain inflammatory markers that we can test in the blood, and if they're significantly elevated, regardless of the patient's comorbidities, we may be dealing with a patient who seems okay today but may not be okay tomorrow, and it allows us to get a leg up on telling these patients what they may need to do if they begin feeling significantly
0: unwell. We got a question about how COVID-19 spreads in the air. Here's Warren from Evanston. Isn't it possible that just by being around somebody that is asymptomatic, but that actually has COVID-19,
1: that they're a carrier, that just the very fact that they're breathing, maybe not sneezing, or coughing. When you breathe out, there's moisture that comes out with it. What about that the
0: air? Couldn't it be contaminated? Dr. Taramina, your thoughts?
1: So this is a, a certainly a very significant concern, and why we have, you know, uh, over 1.5 million cases of this in the world, and, and likely many, many, many more that we have not been able to test because there are asymptomatic carriers, and there are people that that hold on to this virus and maybe are not sick or don't know they're sick and are able to spread it. We do know that the virus is best spread through droplets, through coughing and sneezing. So really having that vehicle to expel that virus from your nasal passages and from your oral pharynx out into the environment. And the distance is is a proximity of about six feet. So being in close contact with someone who's coughing or sneezing is going to be one of the biggest concerns. For someone who is not showing symptoms and is simply breathing, there is the possibility that there is some virus in the air, not necessarily as much as if you were coughing or sneezing, but being in contact with somebody who is not symptomatic and is carrying the virus can be a concern because that individual may have it on their hands, may have it on the, on the surfaces near them if you are in their home, for example, and you may be able to pick up the virus in that capacity. And that's a real challenge, and it is sort of the nature of many viruses and how they can spread and shed asymptomatically in individuals causing a significant number of people to become ill.
0: So, Dr. Terramina, we've been getting a lot of questions about how COVID-19 behaves, how long it can survive on a surface and in the air. What do we know about that? So depending
1: on the surface, we know that COVID-19 can survive for a significant period of time. In general, we can at least expect several days. Certainly, if we're cleaning our surfaces regularly, we're going to be able to sanitize those areas one of the biggest concerns is with international shipping and things like that if we have a package arriving per se from overseas the chances are that package if it uh, did have some virus on it has now spent enough days uh, that the chances of that being a significant issue are are very slim by the time it arrives on our doorstep but surfaces within our home can absolutely hold on to this virus for several days in the air we know that um, It can exist and persist in the air for a significant period of time. This is why in the hospital setting, we are very concerned about what we call aerosolization procedures or any procedure that's going to risk distributing these droplets into the air. This is not an airborne virus. That would be different. That would be a virus like measles that certainly can stay in the air for a significant period of time just by someone breathing in the room as our previous caller had said. If someone is having a procedure where an endotracheal tube is being placed or a bronchoscopy tube is being used in order to see inside the lungs, or if there's a nebulized medicine treatment going on inside of a room, we know that that virus can exist in the air for several hours afterwards, which is why those are the patients we use an N95 respirator when we're examining as they're much higher risk.
0: And if someone coughs or sneezes, how long can those droplets remain in the air?
1: Generally, the droplets don't remain in the air too terribly long. It's it, We always say the solution is dilution. So if you're in a very large space, if you're outside and someone coughs or sneezes, unless you're directly in that flow of the of the cough or sneeze. Um, That's why we have significant um, concerns about uh, patients, or about individuals outside going for a run in groups thinking, oh, well, we're outside. If someone coughs while they're running and you're directly behind them, that's that's going to be a big concern. If you're just outside in general or if you're in a large space, it's unlikely that you're going to be exposed to the droplets, coughed or sneezed by somebody who's just casually walking by in a large area. If you're in a very small area, that's a very different scenario. So basically the volume of air that you're in is going to definitely impact your risk of getting exposed to something for the most part, if we do examine a patient in a room and we have significant concern about droplets in there, in addition to terminal cleaning, meaning cleaning down all of our surfaces, we, we try to leave those exam rooms closed as long as we can in order to allow for that virus to dissipate if there is any particles
0: still in the air. Here's a question from Elaine in Oak Park.
1: I would like to know how long the coronavirus can survive in a refrigerator or a freezer.
0: Now, Dr. Tiramina, I think I remember that this virus actually likes the cold.
1: It's it's a very stable virus in the cold. Um, it is unlikely that that uh, freezing and cooling this virus is going to do much in terms of of damaging it. In the other extreme, if we heat this virus up considerably, we're talking about temperatures 120, 130 degrees Fahrenheit the virus will become less stable and usually after uh, a period of 15 to, to 30 minutes at a very high temperature, this can be uh, killed off. This virus we're finding out more over time is is very stable at a wide variety of temperatures, which is troubling because not only can it survive the cold and survive refrigerated temperatures, but obviously it survives in the human body. So our natural body temperatures, it does quite well. So we're looking more towards very high temperatures as, as part of sterilization procedures that may be assisting us in killing the virus from our instruments and from our masks and other things.
0: So uh, to speak to the previous caller's question, does the virus live for longer if it's in a colder temperature? We've talked about it being able to survive on surfaces for, I believe, several hours. I don't
1: know that it would necessarily live longer. We do know that it can live and can survive. I would say that if it's on a surface, for example, you brought home some ice cream from the from the store and you put it in the in the refrigerator or freezer. It can survive that temperature, um but on the same note, it's on a surface and it's not in its ideal host, which is going to be A human being, or in some cases, a mammal. But in in a human being, uh, that's where it wants to attach and survive and go through a replication process. So eventually not being on its host, it's going to die regardless of temperature. But just simply putting something in a refrigerator or freezer for the purposes of having it be killed off, that would not be ideal. But if uh, there's a container of ice cream sitting in your freezer for several days without being touched, in all probability that virus will not survive.
0: How often should we disinfect high-touch surfaces like doorknobs, light switches, and phones?
1: The phones, yes. If you uh, were in the hospitals with us right now, most providers are walking around with their cell phones in plastic bags mm-hmm. um, just so they don't even touch the screens. Um, phones should be disinfected regularly, almost as frequently as we're washing our hands with uh, with a wipe down of uh, of an antiseptic cloth or even a, an alcohol wipe. Um, phones are just such a high-touch uh, area common surfaces, doorknobs, and and home surfaces daily would be very reasonable. Certainly more frequently, if you have someone who's known to be COVID positive within your home, or if somebody within your home is exhibiting symptoms, then the surface cleaning is going to have to be a bit more regular. In our hospital and clinical settings, we're we're definitely focusing on keyboards, computer stations, and things like that, where we want to make sure that we are wiping these surfaces down quite frequently.
0: What do we know about any specific kinds of medication that can help ease symptoms if people are convalescing at home.
1: That's a very good question. So there's a lot going around um, and people are very much uh, concerned about finding medicines that will work and help with this. By far and away, supportive care is the ideal. So we are are definitely asking patients to rest, recover at home and, and, and be well, and certainly notify us if there's any worsening in symptoms. And the threshold is pretty low if someone has pulmonary symptoms or respiratory symptoms that are worsening for them to actually go to the emergency department. Tylenol is going to be our recommended anti-fever medicine, and it's going to be our, our recommended medication if you're just feeling achy and unwell. We do know that medications in the NSAID class, like ibuprofen, they can sometimes prolong the illness in the way that they work and in the way that they affect the receptors that the virus likes to bind to. These are not absolutes. We do have some patients that, that are doing okay using anti-inflammatories and using medications like ibuprofen a little more regularly. But first line, we definitely recommend using Tylenol as the preferred agent. In some cases, if patients have been seen as an outpatient and maybe had a chest x-ray done, there may be an indication for some antibiotics occasionally, um, which are prescribed by the physician if there appears to be some pneumonia showing up on a chest x-ray. And the remainder of the medications that have been talked about and discussed are being used in sort of a, a trial Uh, method in the hospital. So we're not using a lot of uh, medications. I know um, one that has been very commonly touted is hydroxychloroquine. That is not something that we're using regularly as an outpatient at all. It's uh, being uh, used on an inpatient basis uh, for patients that we think may have some benefit from it. And frankly, it's too soon to tell reliably how much benefit we are seeing from that medication, if any
0: are there any specific resources that you recommend for fact-checking because there is a lot of information out there right now about uh, how to either protect yourself from the virus or how to treat it if you if you think you have symptoms
1: sure i definitely recommend using sites like uh, the illinois department of public health website and the cdc website you know going in and, and putting our stakes on places that are evidence-based and, and scientific in the ways that they're delivering information is wonderful. There are a lot of independent physicians out there that are uh, touting their own modalities that are working, and we certainly, as physicians, are paying attention to see if something is working. We don't have time for randomized controlled trials that are peer-reviewed and generally generate um, data that is is more reliable and, and something that we can use on a day-to-day basis. So I would definitely encourage folks to look more toward the health department websites as opposed to um, social media for answers when it comes to possible uh, medications.
0: Well, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently authorized a new test for coronavirus antibodies. How will this new testing mechanism give us more thorough information on the virus and how it's spreading?
1: That, that's a fantastic question as well. Um, we are just now being able to see the use of these antibody tests. There are actually several different antibody tests that have been released um, and uh, given emergency FDA approval. We have uh, a, a, both an acute and a convalescent antibody. So the IgM is going to be the antibody that shows up early on in the infection and that should correlate with our PCR tests or the swab test that's being done to show that the virus is active and the virus is early. Eventually one would no longer be shedding the virus and develop an IgG antibody. We think that that IgG antibody is going to develop around two plus weeks after infection and time will tell as to how reliable that's going to be once someone has developed IgG antibodies and no longer has a swab that is positive when we swab their nose, we think that they will have protective antibodies for some time. It remains to be seen how long, but the best guesstimate is a year or more. And the hope would be that that individual who has cleared the infection and developed antibody will then be able to hold on to that antibody until hopefully we have a reliable vaccine, and then we can truly um, uh, vaccinate and, and achieve herd immunity. But what is happening right now is with many, many people who are recovering from this virus, they're developing antibodies naturally. With many of us healthcare providers who get exposed but are fortunate enough to not become ill, we may have developed antibody as well. So we're very curious as frontline Uh, employees in the hospital to see if we have developed antibody as well so we can know our level of, of being protected moving forward. And then the general population we talked about, asymptomatic individuals that are not showing symptoms at all, they very well may have been exposed to a household contact and never gotten sick but developed antibody too. Once we are able to have more reliable antibody testing, we may be able to truly see the impact of how many people had this virus.
0: Before we wrap up, Dr. Taramina, I just want you to remind us of the general precautions we should take to prevent the spread of the virus, to protect our, ourselves, because as we said in the beginning, the information continues to evolve as we learn more about COVID-19.
1: Absolutely. We One thing that has changed very uh, significantly from the last time we spoke is now we have uh, the governor's recommendation that if we're out and about in public, especially in an area where we can't guarantee that we're six feet away or more from everybody else, that we do wear something to cover our face. Whether that's a mask, a bandana, a scarf, we ask that you reserve the masks for our healthcare care workers, but if you happen to have one at home, Absolutely. The reason to wear a mask is not to prevent you from getting exposed, it's to prevent others from you. The reality is, as we know, we may be carriers of this virus, even though we're not developing symptoms. And if we were to cough or sneeze, having our mouths covered can help protect the next person from getting exposed hand washing hand washing hand washing is going to be paramount, and certainly keeping our surfaces clean and adhering to these social distancing guidelines. It is working. We need to do the best we can to stay away from one another, and that includes being in a large group outside um, that is not recommended at this time. Certainly, you can go for a run, a walk, a bike ride, but staying you know side by side with two people or you know, being more than six feet away from everybody else. You should not be running in groups, riding in groups, or playing outside in groups in any capacity at this point.
0: That's Dr. Mia Tiramina, an infectious disease specialist with DuPage Medical Group. Dr. Tiramina, thanks for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. Thanks for making us a part of your day. For the latest news about the COVID-19 crisis, tune to 91.5 WBEZ, stream us at wbez.org, or go to wbez.org slash coronavirus. I'm Jen White. Stay safe, and let's talk again soon.